Todd Hunter. Welcome to the C4SO podcast. I'm really delighted today to have as our guest, Ruth Haley Barton. Ruth's one of my favorite people. I love her voice. I love her personhood that she brings to her writing and all the contributions she's made to the literature of spiritual formation. And today we talk to her about her latest book, Embracing Rhythms of Work and Rest, From Sabbath to Sabbatical and Back Again. You may know that Ruth is the founder of the Transforming Center. This is a ministry that's dedicated to creating space for God to strengthen the soul of leaders, equipping us to lead ourselves, transforming communities. I'm very excited to present this conversation to you. Hey, Ruth, it's great to see you today. Good to be with you across you, the airwaves. I know. Do you mind me? I'm, I'm going to have to probably embarrass you a little bit here when we get started. Oh. You're probably going to be like one of those people on the 10 o'clock news who says, well, I'm not really a hero. I just did what anybody would do. <laughs> but but here's my story. I, I just, I, I want my C4SO mm-hmm. colleagues to know this. So you or InterVarsity, I forget which, sent me the manuscript for Embracing Rhythms of Work and Rest last year sometime. Um, and I, uh, was preparing to have a five month sabbatical first long Ooh. sabbatical I've ever had in my life. So of course I read the book and offered an endorsement, but I devoured the chapters on how to have a sabbatical. So yes. your book really guided so much of how I approach sabbatical. And so I've, I've owed you this big thanks for sort of saving my oh, life. Yes. Um, and haven't had a chance to tell you, but I want to tell you now. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. That's really, really encouraging. So now I want to hear all about your sabbatical. <laughs> yeah. So we'll have to do that offline. Okay. All right. <laughs> so Ruth, um, people who uh, think about spiritual formation, Christian spirituality, that sort of stuff, they, they of course know you. You're, you're one of the leading thinkers and practitioners in our tribe. But you didn't just uh, emerge suddenly out of nowhere. Uh, you have a story. So could you just please tell our listeners a bit about how did formation and um, you know Christian spirituality and the way that you think about it come to be a thing in your life? Mm, yeah. Well, that's hearkening way, way back, as we yeah. know now. But um, you know, when people ask me, how did you, you know, get here in terms of the emphasis in your life and things like mm-hmm. that, it's, the answer is always, well, because I needed it you know, because mm-hmm. I needed it so badly because yeah. I realized that I had uh, been a pastor's kid. I'd been in, in churches all my life. I'd been doing all the things, listening to sermons, being in small groups, reading Christian self-help books. I mean, I'd done it all and I wasn't changing. Yeah. So I, the reason I'm here is because I needed it and I continue mm. to need it. And um, I am just blessed every day to be working in this arena because I get to come home and come back to what I know is most important. Mm -hmm. And I can't get too far from it because my teachings and the things that I do won't allow it. Um, And so I needed it then, you know, 30 years ago, I still need this call to spiritual transformation. I still have a deep desire to change. I still have a deep Mm -hmm. desire for sane rhythms of work and rest, um, a deep desire for the spiritual practices that keep me open to God's transforming work in my own life. Um, There's just nothing else that is as important to me as those things are. And so I feel, I feel very blessed to be working in the arena that actually meets my own need. Yeah. I mean, I can just completely amen. Uh, My story is in the early nineties, I was just like you, I was having a a very deep felt need. In my case, it was not a crisis of faith in terms of like, do I believe in God or not? Mm -hmm. It was more of a crisis of faith around issues of 
just trouble with church that so mm-hmm. many people have today. Yeah. And I didn't, there was no spiritual formation movement as we know it in the early nineties. Um, but long story short, I happened to have a connection with Richard Foster and I had his book. And from there I got introduced to what we now think of as sort of the literature, you know, of Henry Nowen and, mm-hmm. and later Eugene and Dallas and yourself and people like that. So it was the same thing, Ruth, it really rescued me. And, mm-hmm. and, and I'm just <clears throat> like you, I, I practice it as hard now, uh, or as devotedly now as I did when I discovered mm-hmm. it 30 years ago. Yeah. So let's get into the ideas mm-hmm. of your book a little bit. Um, when you wrote Embracing Rhythm, uh, Rhythms, was there a, like a core problem or challenge that you were addressing? Mm-hmm. And if so, what was it? Yeah. Well, I've I've written and spoken about Sabbath for many, many years. I've practiced Sabbath for 20 years, and it's a, it's a deep part of my own understanding of spirituality. So there's a chapter on it in Sacred Rhythms. There's a chapter on it in Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership. But then, yes, what is it that caused me to want to write a whole book on it right yeah. now, embracing rhythms of work and rest from Sabbath to sabbatical and back again? Yeah. And there, the, part of the clue in that is in the subtitle, because I really wanted to write about sabbatical. Mm. Um, I had been given the gift of sabbatical, and it was so meaningful to me, and I did not have hardly any resources. There's hardly any resources out there on sabbatical. And so I took two sabbaticals and then realized there needs to be a bit more of resource on the idea of sabbatical. And this is, you know, this is the backstory. Uh, but the publisher said, we're not sure there'd be as much of a market for just yeah. sabbatical. <laughs> so this is crazy, isn't it? You know, not many people get full paid sabbaticals. Do you think mm-hmm. you could write about Sabbath and sabbatical? Mm-hmm. And so I said, yeah, it, it was a challenge in writing the book because I had already written about Sabbath. And so the question of, right. do I have any more to say on Sabbath, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. was part of the struggle of writing the book. But I'm actually grateful now because the idea of sabbatical actually emerges from Sabbath. And in fact, the, the meaning mm-hmm. of the word sabbatical is is having to do with Sabbath. And so I realized that the most appropriate movement for us is to embrace Sabbath in our lives. And then eventually we expand our practice of Sabbath to include sabbatical. So the two parts of the book are real tight. They're very tightly related to each other. And Mm -hmm. it also gave me the opportunity to say some more things about Sabbath that I really wanted to say. Yeah. Um, One of those things was really wanted to clear up the idea about Sabbath beginning with God, you know, that it's not about any sort of ethnic group at all. When God called a people for God's self, God shared with them the gift of Sabbath, but God began God's own creative life in this world by practicing this rhythm of working six days and resting on the seventh. So that's really important to me that we as Christians identify this as practice having to do with God, not having to do with any sort of uh, ethnicity. Secondly, I really wanted to talk about the idea of Sabbath as resistance, that Sabbath is not about privilege. In fact, it was given Mm. to an oppressed peoples. And so in our culture, we could think about it as being an aspect of privilege, but it's really not, not in the way that it was given. Mm -hmm. In the way that it was given, it was given to an oppressed people and it was given to them as sign, symbol, and lived reality of their freedom to live on God's terms for them, Yes, to be free from their bondage. And I think we are in bondage in different ways in in our Mm -hmm. culture now. And so to emphasize this idea that the Sabbath is a path towards freedom from Mm -hmm. our bondage, to me, it's exciting every time I practice to think that I'm saying, I'm free. I am free to live on God's terms for me. And so there's a little bit of an edge to it. It's not just about rest. It's also about liberation and resistance to Mm -hmm. bondage uh, to life in our culture. But then finally, and this is a big one, I really wanted to drive a stake in the ground around the communal 
act aspects yeah, of yeah. Sabbath keeping mm-hmm. that I know many, many, many people, including myself, who are trying to practice Sabbath in a privatized sort of way. Right. But the truth is the Sabbath wasn't given to an individual. Mm-hmm. The Sabbath was given to a group of people who practiced together. And I think that's one of the reasons why it worked for them was because they practiced in community. And so in this book, I have offered up some language that I haven't used anywhere else yet. And that is the idea of a Sabbath community and the call to leaders to lead Sabbath communities. So those are the the things that began to come out as I took this invitation from the publisher to write about Sabbath as well as sabbatical. I realized, yeah, I do have some more things I want to say about Sabbath, and I'm grateful for the chance, you know, to to capture them in words and in written form. Yeah, we're so glad you did. So I heard a phrase there, Sabbath is resistance. Mm-hmm. Were you doing a little work with Brueggemann? And yes, his, absolutely. His on... Yes, absolutely. So, so say a bit more mm-hmm. about that, Ruth, because I think it's not common mm-hmm. knowledge or not completely intuitive. Like we, I think one of Brueggemann's things is, well, now you got to make bricks without straw mm-hmm. and how yes. they were just co-opted mm-hmm. to that set of realities Say more about this business. I love how you link this to the idea of freedom. Mm-hmm. So talk just a bit more about what you and Brueggemann are doing yes. there when you're trying to actually give us freedom, mm-hmm. not trying to make us commit to another legalism. Yes. Oh, and thank you for bringing up Brueggemann because, of course, his book uh, informed that chapter in, in really deep ways. And it's for, informed my own Sabbath practice for so long. And I was glad to be able to write about that a little bit more because I think we do think about Sabbath as being sort of a soft discipline you know, Mm -hmm. that it's all about the rest. And it is about rest, but there's a sharper edge to it. And that edge is the fact that we're saying no to the ways in which we're in bondage to things other than God. And so he rightly takes us all the way back to the original giving of the Sabbath to the, the children of Israel, and that it was given to them as a way of saying you are no longer in bondage to the powers that be who really don't care about you as human beings. You know, the Pharaoh did not care about the Israelites and their capacities right. and their quality of life, did not care about their God and how they want to live in the presence of their God. Pharaoh only cared about how much he could get from them in terms of forest and free labor. And the way that that Brueggemann wrote about that really ties itself to our culture now, this yes. culture of always being productive, proving Mm -hmm. ourselves by what we can do, proving ourselves by our achievements, that that's what our culture values. And we think we're living free, but we're not. You know, we're living in bondage to a culture that doesn't care about us as people, doesn't care about our humanity, doesn't care about freedom to walk with God the way that, you know, on God's terms for us. And so in a very real sense, we also are practicing Sabbath as a way of resisting culture and saying, no, you don't own me. God yeah. owns me yeah. and I'm Amen. living my life in response to God's work in my life and God's creation of me because God made us and God knows that we were not created to just produce seven days a week. Yeah. So we're actually living then in sync with our creator, which is a different kind of allegiance. And on the yeah. Sabbath, we declare it. On the Sabbath, we declare our allegiance to the one who made us versus our allegiance to a culture that only cares about productivity. It's deeply, deeply inspiring to yeah. think that the Sabbath is a path towards a kind of freedom that many of us don't even consider. In my own experience and from working with Christian leaders for many decades now, is that we're not just co-opted by the powers, you know, thinking of Paul, the principalities Mm -hmm. and powers around us that are economic and social and political, the kind of things you've named, but we're also co-opted by how our own disordered desires Mm -hmm. and our own brokenness easily attach to those things and have a hard time detaching from them. 
and ever coming to see Sabbath as freedom. So would mm-hmm. you say that the practice of Sabbath and sabbatical, there is a process that one has to go through before one begins to experience it as true freedom and not just mm-hmm. like another religious thing to do? I think so. And, you know, it could also be depending on your background as it has to do with Sabbath, because I write honestly in my book about the fact that I was raised in a pastor's home and we did Mm -hmm. practice Sabbath, but we practiced it in a very legalistic way. And so part of my process was to give it up completely, which I did when I Mm -hmm. left my uh, family and my home. And I, I was really glad to be rid of it. It had been a legalistic day. It had been a day when, as a pastor's family, we had to stay in our Sunday clothes. There were many, many mm. things we couldn't do. It was a day of rules. It right. was also a day of very hard work. My dad, being the pastor, meant that we had company, that the women worked really hard to serve guests. Right. I mean, there wasn't anything about it that was delightful or restful. Mm-hmm. So I did kick it to the curb you know, for 20 years. But then in my early 40s, when I had been, you know, working seven days a week in God's service, because I've been in ministry ever since I, you know, left college, then I realized that my lifestyle was wearing me out and wearing me down. And then finally, I began to see Sabbath as actually a gift from God and really um, found the Sabbath by God's grace. God gave it back to me in a way that was quite redeemed. And I began to experience it as the great gift that it is. And so, so now I feel nothing but delight about Sabbath. And in fact, one of the things that I say to people is that the Sabbath is the practice that makes me fall in love with God again, Hmm. week in and week out. Every single week, I fall in love again with a God who would think to give us his children such a good and perfect gift. Well, you always have such a wonderful voice and tone in all of your books. But that especially comes through in this book. So well done. Mm, And I say that for potential readers, that when you read this, it's quite invitational. It's quite honest. It's not teachy or preachy in the negative sense of the terms. And so well done, Ruth. Mm. That that invitational thing that you went through yourself really comes through in the book. So thank you. Thank you. So I don't know where I learned this, Ruth, but uh, sitting here thinking it might be from our mutual friend, uh, Cindy Bunch at InterVarsity Mm. Press. But somewhere along the line in my writing, I've been told, you know, obviously we, there, we're always told when we're writing books to have a very specific audience in mind. Mm-hmm. And so somebody gave me the little tactic of actually put a picture up or a little col- mm-hmm. um, collage of pictures. So I've done that sometimes when I've been writing books. I put it on the mm-hmm. wall and in front of me. So just using that as an idea, who were you writing to here? Mm-hmm. Who did you really have in mind? Yeah. And what were you hoping, not only just to say to them, but what were you hoping the book would do for mm-hmm. them? Yeah, that is a really lovely question. And I think whenever you're writing on a book that others have written beautiful books about, you have to find your audience and you have to find your voice. Like, how am I going to write about this? Because it's not like there aren't other gorgeous books about Sabbath. I mean, you know, there's Wayne Mueller and there's Rabbi Heschel and wow, there's just gorgeous books about Sabbath. So you do have to find your way with your own work. So I really appreciate the question. And yes, I really was writing to leaders um, Mm. in two different ways, pastors and leaders of communities, Um, even leaders of Christian ministry organization, Mm -hmm. which is my, which is my thing now. I mean, I've been in a leadership role with the Transforming Center for 20 years. And so I'm writing from a not-for-profit ministry standpoint as well. I was writing directly to leaders in two ways. One is about their own personal practice and how absolutely necessary the Sabbath practice is for people who are in leadership, but also acknowledging the unique challenges for people in leadership, for pastors in particular, for whom Sunday is 
the busiest day of their week and the yeah. biggest work day of their week. You know, we have to, you know, be creative and we have to think some new ways about Sabbath. And it's different. It's not just coming home after preaching two or three times and collapsing in your lazy boy that, mm-hmm. and watching football. That is not, that is not Sabbath, yeah. you know? And, um, so, you know, there's a lot of clarification around what Sabbath actually is and how pastors and leaders can embrace this practice in a way that actually works for them in their the unique challenges of their of their life. But then the other way I'm addressing leaders does have to do with this call to not only find the beauty of Sabbath for yourself, but if you're a true leader, you're going to want to bring whatever goodness you're experiencing in your own life to your community. So what does it mean for you as a pastor or a leader to bring the goodness of Sabbath and the gift of Sabbath yeah. into your life together with others, with those that you lead? And so chapter nine of the book in particular, I talk about leading Sabbath communities and I tell the story of Pastor Dan, who is a composite, by the way. Every single yeah. aspect of who he is, is something that I've seen and witnessed and that I know yeah. uh, really well and people that I know. And I tell his story of coming to a sense of his own limits, the fact that he wasn't really practicing Sabbath. He's ready to kick ministry to the curb. He um, engages with a spiritual director who helps him to see that he's not experiencing Sabbath as the real mm-hmm. gift that it could be for him. And he experiences Sabbath in his own life. And then finally, out of the goodness that he experiences, he begins to bring it both to his staff and to his eldership. And I'm that chapter is so dear to my heart because uh. there's just so much possibility in it. And when I come to the end of that chapter... And I write about how he begins to unfold this to his congregation. Uh, He preaches a sermon about Sabbath, and I write in a standing ovation because I've seen this Mm. happen. And I was crying while I'm writing it because (laughs) it's so true. And just how much a congregation would love a leader who would lead them into such Mm. rhythms and who would say, you know what, you know, we're not going to give up corporate worship, but everything else we're going to put up on the altar until we figure out how we can incorporate Sabbath into our life together. Who won't love a pastor like that? Well, maybe some of the elders who have their own visions of grandiosity, and they also need to consider it. So Mm. there's this dual movement in the book of him working with his staff, but then also beginning to share his journey with his elders and having his elders become awake to the possibility that this could be a part of their spiritual leadership, is that they could think about how to bring Sabbath to the congregation and that that's a part of what it means to be a shepherd. It's a part of what it means to be a good shepherd is to lead people in these good rhythms. So vestries and, you know, in your setting, it would be, I mean, I think it would be the vestry members who might have Mm -hmm. the opportunity to embrace and to learn together about this practice. Hi, this is Ryan Flanagan, founder of the music project Liturgical Folk and the director of music at Resurrection South Austin. I am very excited to announce that C4SO is partnering with Liturgical Folk to host its first ever liturgical songwriting retreat. The retreat will be held on March 10th and 11th on a beautiful farm just south of Nashville, Tennessee. If you are a songwriter of church music, this retreat is designed for you to catch your breath connect and collaborate with other artists to create new devotional songs for the sake of others. The registration fee is just $99 and includes meals as well as a Lenten concert by Liturgical Folk. If you'd like to learn more or sign up for the retreat, visit c4so.org songwriting retreat. I will be leading this retreat and I look forward to connecting with you there. Well, if we take serious the work that you and uh, Brogamon were 
we're doing on Sabbath is resistance and Sabbath is a kind of deliverance. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, if a group of people were being delivered from a genuine bondage, yeah. you, yes, they would cheer. And That's right. Be grateful and, yeah. you know, be rejoicing in that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I guess I, again, I think I remember as you were talking, Ruth, I was in business college, in college studying business in the early seventies. And I remember sitting in a business class when, you know, we were still doing computer programming on cards mm-hmm. at that time. Mm. But I remember this one professor saying, we really don't know what humanity is going to do once computers take over because we feel like it's going to reduce the need mm-hmm. for human work by about 70%. That's mm-hmm. the kind of thing that yeah. was being talked about in the early 70s. Now, of 40, course, the four-day the four day work week was being talked yes. about then. Yeah. That computers were going to make it possible for us to have a four-day work week. And so now we all know this, that this connectivity is both beautiful and becoming a kind of a bondage itself mm-hmm. because you can now work 24-7 if you want. You can be connected mm-hmm. to activity 24-7 if you want. And so again, taking that reality serious feels like such a a big gift that you're giving us. Mm -hmm. So when you came to writing this book, as I've said, you know, any of us who read the literature know that you have this lovely voice and lovely contribution to the literature of formation and Christian spirituality. But when you wrote this book, was there an angle Mm -hmm. that you were particularly conscious of? Was it that angle of resistance and gift and freedom or... Again, what was the angle and the hoped for outcome from using that yeah. angle? Mm-hmm. Let me just, I'm going to layer one more, um, one more layer onto this. There was this also idea of delight. Mm. I really wanted to elevate this idea of yeah. delight and talk about delight because I don't feel like we talk about that word very much or as Christians, we even think that we're supposed to have that much delight, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. in our lives. Yeah, it was definitely the gift angle. Like I wanted mm. people to feel what I feel about the gift that Sabbath is and to experience the delight that I experience in my Sabbath practice. And then also the necessity. I think there's a little bite there that um, Mm. I actually said that in the beginning of the book, as I open up the book, that I don't think I'd be alive today if it wasn't for the Mm. gift of Sabbath. I hope that that people get the sense of urgency that I feel through that through that sentence. I do not think Sabbath is optional. I have no idea how we as Christians figured we could just kick the fourth commandment to the curb. I don't know (laughs) how we've done that. Like we keep all the other commandments, but the fourth one, we somehow say, well, you know, we don't need to do that one. Jesus didn't teach on it, which is, he didn't teach on it because he was living it. You know, (laughs) he and his disciples were practicing Jews. So they were, they were living the Sabbath. Jesus didn't have to teach on it. It was just assumed, you know? Right. So I think that there is this, this dual you know, edge to it. One is a sense of urgency that it saves our lives. And I believe that it does for us as leaders in particular, but then on the other side, the gift nature of it, how can we experience it for the great gift that it is and the delight that it is? I don't know of another book on Sabbath that addresses leaders as strongly as I'm leading, as I'm addressing leaders in this book. Um, That was the other thing. I just didn't see anybody, including Heschel, Mm -hmm. talking about how to lead a Sabbath community, you know? How do we do this in community? And that's the part I actually hope really comes to the top of consciousness and that it, that while, yes, the book will probably feel good to lots of people, my real dream is that leaders would get a hold of it. And of course, many leaders know about Sabbath. So the, the, the part on the personal practice probably is not as significant. I believe that what is more significant is the focus on leadership and how this is a part of our leadership to lead communities in this way. And then finally, as you mentioned early in our conversation, that sabbatical is part of what it means to be a Sabbath community. Mm -hmm. 
And so how can groups of leaders, elders, vestry sessions, how can they begin to embrace this, write it into terms of call? How can we begin to see this as part of being a Sabbath community is that we give our leaders sabbaticals and then some guidance because I found so little guidance on sabbatical when I took my own. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because that was one of the questions I, I wanted to ask. That it feels to me after you're reading your book and just again reflecting on 40 some years of ministry, that Sabbath and sabbatical has to become like a part and parcel of an overarching culture that's committed to spiritual health, spiritual wellness. Yeah. And not just health and wellness in that cheesy sort of modern way, but whatever the goodness, the shalom mm-hmm. that God had in mind that is mediated to us through Sabbath yeah. and sabbatical, that, that that has to arise out of a, it feels like to me, a deeper and prior commitment mm-hmm. to, to spiritual practices and to spiritual formation. So just putting a little finer point on what you just asked, if somebody reads your book and gets it, but they're really mm-hmm. starting from ground zero. Mm-hmm. How would you suggest that they work with a vestry, a board, a parish council, um, employment agreements and stuff that that this become a, a regular rhythm in a community? Yeah. Well, um, some denominations do better than others already in this. So like the Presbyterians, there is sabbatical policy that's there in that denomination. Mm-hmm. So it's our, the support is already there. I know you're a denominational leader. And so, um, you know, to put it, you know, in the denominate at the denominational level, that this is part of the terms of call written into anyone's call to a particular, you know, parish or, or congregation. Yeah. I would love to see it codified at that level, at the denominational level. Because in some of the conversations I've been having with people on my own podcast, what I'm hearing is that when it's written into terms of call, then even pastors who might set it aside or think, I don't need that, or I could never have that, when it's written in, it's there. And that's a tremendous support to a leader's need and desire to live in a healthy way. You know, in, in the story of Pastor Dan in the book, one of the places he started was by getting in touch with his own need. And then taking the risk of being honest. And and I will say that's how I got my first one, is that I had to be, you know, in the Transforming Center, we had been in existence for 20 years and we had never really considered sabbatical. I don't even know that we thought we would last this long, yeah. you know, long yeah. enough to need to give the senior leader, uh, you know, a sabbatical. Right. Um, and then it met with so much support the minute I brought it up, you know, mm. that I felt, you know, at, there was a season of crisis that we went through. And I also had a lot of personal responsibilities from in my within my family that brought me to a place of really being pretty toasty, I'll say. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it didn't take anything at all for this board, for my the board of the Transforming Center to say, yes, of course, that's a part of our essence. Of course, of course. So sometimes the leader has to be the one to bring it, but I'd prefer it came the other way. I'd prefer mm-hmm. that it was already in the practices and policies of the denomination or the church itself, if it's a non-denominational yeah. church, and um, that the pastor doesn't have to advocate themselves, but it's already there. And then the right. only question is how and when and what resources are going to be put towards it and you know, and that sort of thing. So in the epilogue of your book, Ruth, you tell a bit of the story about how you yourself were saved by Sabbath mm-hmm. and you use the phrase saved by rest. And I was thinking that for a lot of our listeners and just a lot of people I've known mm. over the years, that that's a bit counterintuitive because it seems like rest is a non-thing. Mm-hmm. Like right? the thing is work. The thing is activity. Rest feels like a non-thing. It's an absence. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and something that we often devalue in our yeah. pursuit of this very full, robust life. So how is it that we are saved by rest? Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that phrase? What do you, yeah. like, what do you see in your heart, uh, see in your mind, feel in your heart when you use that phrase saved by rest? Mm-hmm. Well, there's this quote that I, that I give at the beginning of that epilogue and thank you for drawing attention to it. And I just love this quote and I really have pondered it deeply where it says that um, in the, in the, in the, in the Jewish tradition, more than Israel has kept Shabbat, Shabbat has kept Israel. Mm, I love that because that is my experience is Uh that I don't keep it. It keeps me, you know? And so I relied a little bit on Isaiah 30 where, you know, the writer of scripture there says that in returning and rest, we shall be saved and quietness and trust shall be our strength. That it, there's also shades of that biblical truth in there when I say it, you know, and Isaiah 30, we like that verse pulled out of context, but it's an even better verse in context (laughs) because it's in the context of the Israelites having received the invitation to rest. And God says, I keep giving you this invitation and you run, you know, you run the other way and you go back to Egypt and you make your alliances. And so I actually move through some of the the things that keep us from saying yes to God's invitation to rest. And I guess for myself personally, what I would say is that I think that if I had not heard so deeply God's invitation to rest in my own life, that my own drivenness, my own ambition, my own um, grandiosity would have just run me into the ground until I was a puff of smoke. Like, you know, the way I was living wasn't sustainable. I, I don't think I would have been sustained for the long haul of my life in ministry, I think I would have begun to crack and fall apart and become Mm -hmm. so much less because I wasn't living in God's rhythms for me. And every week I feel that, that dynamic of saving, you know, my weeks Mm. wear me out. Um, I know I'm getting to be a woman of a certain age now, but um, (laughs) it was in my early forties where I began to recognize a level of exhaustion that I knew I could not sustain. And so maybe many people in their 30s have to run and run and run until they get to that point of realizing, I can't keep this up. I don't want to live this way. There's nothing about this that is good for me. Of course, I would have the dream, and I'm around some younger people who see the goodness without having to hit the wall, you know? I sort of had to to hit the wall a little bit in order for God to show me how important Sabbath was. But now week in and week out, I have this experience of Sabbath saving me. And keeping yeah. me from wearing myself out and wearing myself down through my attempts to keep doing and doing and doing. Mm-hmm. Well, going back to the beginning of our conversation, when I said you certainly uh, helped save me in terms of mm-hmm. my Sabbath, I just, while you're talking, quickly opened my Sabbath journal. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is what's the very first thing on my Sabbath journal. It's like mm-hmm. the title, I will keep you safe if you turn back to me and calm down. I will make you strong if you quietly trust me. And that's that Isaiah 30 passage in the Mm -hmm. CEV, the, I guess the contemporary. Contemporary English version. Yeah. yeah, So your, your, Mm -hmm. uh, your epilogue was the foundational thought for my uh, sabbatical. That was the the verse that I kept in front of me. So thank you. Oh, thank you for sharing that. That's um, really amazingly encouraging. Thank you. So, uh, Ruth, just as we uh, finish here, I wonder if you could just share a word of encouragement to our listeners who are struggling mm-hmm. against this culture that works, uh, mm-hmm. that um, rewards workaholism. And what they're really struggling with is almost like an addiction, almost like a yeah. chemical addiction. Can you just give people a word of encouragement who mm-hmm. maybe have listened to us and thought, yeah, I get it. I hear you guys. 
mm-hmm. sure you're right. Like I don't have intellectual struggles with what you're saying, but it feels like there's something really deep in me, a fear, a commitment to workaholism, those sorts of things. Can you just give a little word of encouragement for somebody who feels, feels stuck, mm-hmm. yeah. how they might start? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to start in a kind of a counterintuitive place. It might not feel very powerful to you, but I can guarantee you that if you stay with it, it will become powerful. And that is that if there's any stirring of desire in your heart right now, as you listen, any sense that I need that, I want that, fan that little tiny flame of desire into a burn, a flame that burns brighter. Um, and that's what ha- I, I had to get to a place of sensing my own need and my own deep desire for a way of life that works mm-hmm. in order to ever make the changes that I needed to make. And I also had to lean into my desire and say, I I don't know how to make this work right now. I mean, at the time that my invitation came, I was on staff at a church. So that meant Sundays were a busy day for me. Um, My husband worked at a bank and his bank was open on Sundays. And then my children were all teenagers and they were in sports. So, I mean, it was a completely impossible situation. But all of a sudden, I wanted it really badly. I wanted it more than anything. And I said, God, I'm going to trust you that I can move towards this desire and you're going to meet me and you're going to help me. I had to do it by myself first. I couldn't change my whole family. Don't let that even stop you. <laughs> um, don't even make it about other people. Determine what you're going to do based on your own desire and just start um, based on desire. You got to get let that desire deepen into desperation almost. You got to let it deepen into a, an intentionality that enables you to make some choices. Uh, let yourself feel. I had to let myself feel my desire for a way of life that works and then to say to God, I don't know how this is going to happen, but I'm really trusting you. If you're holding this out for me as a gift, I'm going to trust that if I lean in, you're going to meet me and you're going to help me uh, to know how to make this happen in my life. Trust God with your desire and see where you and God go together. Yeah, thank you. Ruth, thank you for being here with us today with uh, C4SO leaders. Uh, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of leaders who listen to this mm-hmm. podcast, and I'm so grateful for them to have had this little connection with you personally, your life mm-hmm. and your work and your great voice and all the contributions you've made to the literature of Christian spirituality. We're, we're grateful for you. Oh, thank you so much. And especially thank you for having engaged it deeply yourself before we talked. That is very, very meaningful to me to talk to yeah. a person who said, I worked with this during my sabbatical and, and it was yeah. meaningful. So thank you. You're very welcome. <laughs>